It's good to be in the presence of the Lord God, and it's good to remember the words of the Psalms where it says, Where can I go from your presence, O Lord? Where can I flee from you? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I go across the sea, you are there. Into the depths of Sheol, even there I will find you. So the presence of God is, is everywhere we are. If you believe in the Lord God, He is with you. And you take him wherever you go. So we're grateful to have the presence of the Lord with us even here today. And we hope to experience him in a very real way. We are passing out Bibles and uh, note sheets and pencils. Uh, those are all tools that we hope will help you to better engage with the word today and to enjoy it. Um, I pray that it will be a blessing to you to use those things. But the greatest tool that you have when you engage with the word of God is the Holy Spirit, is the presence of God. When you give your life to Christ, when you trust in him, then He gives you His Holy Spirit. And it's not just to seal you into His kingdom forever, which it does, but it is also to act as a helper for you, to act as a companion that will help you to understand what, what God has revealed to us in His Scripture. The, the Scripture is plain to us in Romans 3 that there was no one who sought the Lord God before the Lord God sought them. So before the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and begins to make that change and to make us love the Lord God, uh, who we formerly rebelled against, then the, the Word of God doesn't make sense to us. It doesn't, it doesn't compute. But when the Holy Spirit comes to reside in our lives, we can begin to see what the Scripture intends for us to know. These are mysterious things that God can make clear to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. So before you come to church on Sundays, before you open the, the Word in the morning, when you have your quiet times, pray that God would use the Holy Spirit to help you understand what He wants to reveal to you more clearly. The well-known uh, English Puritan Richard Baxter once remarked, there are too many men who are ministers before they know how to be Christians. This is a, a humbling reality. It says a lot about the mistakes that the, the church in the world has so often made as they've appointed men to serve in the position of elder or the position of deacon who really aren't ready to serve in that capacity. Just because a man is a naturally skilled leader, just because he can command an audience and draw other men and women to himself, just because a man has been successful in the realm of business, in the secular world, he is efficient and he is productive just because a man has been around church for a long time and he understands the ebb and the flow of religious congregations, that doesn't mean that he necessarily is ready to serve as a leader in God's church. The roles of elder and deacon are roles of influence, of impact, and putting the wrong people in those positions can seriously damage the development of the disciples in those churches, along with the name of Jesus Christ that they uphold with their testimony. So that's why we are going to such great trouble to examine the scriptures that define our understanding of biblical leaders that God has set aside to lead his church. And it's why we've spoken at length regarding the character of those that God will use to lead his churches. And so over the last several weeks, we've asked questions like, does this man who would serve in God's church have a true testimony of faith? They've got to know the Lord God and trust in Him with their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Does this man handle his first ministry, his family, with care? Is he faithful in the congregation that God has put in his own home, his wife and his children? Are his motives for serving the Lord God in the church pure? Is he here for the betterment of the people and the exaltation of the name of God, or is he here to make a name for himself? Is this man's character and faith obvious to others? 
It is not good enough for him to have a secret, quiet faith that nobody ever hears about. He must be the kind of individual who loves the Lord God in a way that others can see flowing out of him. Is there any disqualifying trait in his life? Has he made room in his life for sin that might do damage to the name of Christ whom he is to serve or to the congregation that he would lead? Does this man exhibit reasonable control over himself? Is he in control of his emotions? Does he guard his thoughts and his mind? Are his actions and his words compliant with the word of Jesus Christ? A man of right character may very well be a good candidate to serve in one or two of the primary leadership roles that are described to us in the New Testament. And so we want to take time to understand these two roles and see why each is important for the health of God's church. For the next two weeks, we're going to examine each of these distinct offices. First, this morning, we will speak about what it means to be an elder. And then next week, we're going to talk about the biblical deacon so that we might see exactly what God intends to accomplish through these two categories of leader. Now, as we attempt to form a biblical understanding of these roles, this morning particularly the role of an elder, pastor, you're very likely going to have some church experience that gives you an idea of what an elder might be. These are probably not brand new concepts for you. I'm not going to ask you this morning to disregard in any way the experiences that you've had in the churches you've been in before. But I will caution you that what the world would define as pastor or elder might not exactly match the original calling that we see God drawing men into in the New Testament record. What is this image that you see on the screen? What is that? That's an umpire, right? It's an umpire. Most everyone recognizes that right away and calls it what it's supposed to be called. We see this picture, we immediately think umpire. But the word umpire and the position of umpire comes from a French word, nom pair, which means not even. It means odd. And what it refers to, its original usage, was to a legal position, a person who served in the courts when two different parties could not come to a conclusion together. If they were at an impasse, the umpire would become the odd vote, that extra impartial vote to sway the decision one way or the other. He was, in a sense, an arbitrator. So in, in, in those days, an umpire would come forward and two parties would present their case. They would show their evidence. He would weigh all that evidence. And as an impartial third party, he would decide which direction the ruling should go. In many ways, he was a, a low-level judge. It wasn't until 1710 that the title umpire was first applied to an official who kept track of the scores in an Olympic wrestling match. Over the years, the word umpire has been almost completely redefined to describe someone who presides over a sports contest and makes both teams keep the rules of the sport that they are playing. So can you see how over the years, terms can change dramatically from their original usage? based on how they are used popularly in the common society that they, are, uh, that they exist in. So as we speak of the specific roles of elder and deacon, you might need to re-engineer a little bit what you think about elders and deacons, what you know about these biblical offices, as you see how they were originally defined in the early church. Because in the 2,000 years that the churches in the, in the world have been putting these offices into practice, we see many times that their use has drifted away from God's original intended meaning. So if you would open up your scriptures with me to Titus chapter 1, 
Um, that's where we're going to start our journey this morning. We've been leaning heavily on this passage of Scripture that describes uh, it's actually a message from Paul, who himself is an elder, to another elder, Titus, who is going to be uh, directing and instructing the construction of a church there in the place where he is serving. And so the Apostle Paul is giving him orders and directions and helping him to understand the role of elder in his church. And so Titus 1.5, Titus 1.5, just lost my place, says this. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, the Greek term for elders there in the verse that we just read is presbyteros. Presbyteros, a man of wisdom and experience who has a track record of walking in the Lord and is looked upon with respect as one who desires to please God and follow the scriptures in an exemplary way. Now, the key term that we need to associate with elder here is the word maturity. Write that down if you need to, the word maturity. The word elder does not necessarily mean that one is old or advanced in years. Rather, it means that one is established in the faith and exhibits the kind of maturity that we see in people who have walked with the Lord for a time and have grown close to Him through faith. There are people who have lived as Christians for many, many years, and yet they still struggle to display true Christian maturity in their lives. The first church that my wife and I served at was a little church in Livermore, and we loved that church. There was not a, a great deal of unity in regards to what that church was supposed to be trying to accomplish. In a sense, it was two congregations under the title of one church. Though the lead pastor of that church was a good man who loved Christ, and he had a great desire to see that community that the church was planted in grow in the Lord. He wanted to reach the lost there. There weren't very many Bible teaching churches in that area, in that region, so they were strategically positioned to reach these new families that were moving into Livermore in that area. And he desperately wanted to see the gospel preached to them. He wanted to see the church have open arms to these new folks so that they might see the love of God, understand the weight of sin, and recognize that only Christ could save them and bring them near to God. But unfortunately, there were many within the church who were more concerned with preserving the unique microculture of that particular church that they had grown familiar with over the many years. They wanted to keep Granada Baptist exactly the same as it had been for the last 35 years of his, of his existence. And some of the people who most vehemently opposed the Great Commission work in that congregation were the ones that had been believers for the longest. They were the ones that should have recognized the great potential of that church and seen the desperate need of the community for Christ. And yet many of those older in years believers were the very ones that stifled the growth of the church because they refused to reach out to the people that were not just like them. I learned the sad lesson that contrary to popular belief, practice doesn't make perfect. Practice only makes permanent. The more you do a thing a certain way, the more you will train yourself to do it that same way every time. The problem is, if you're doing it the wrong way and you're doing it over and over again, you're simply ingraining into your mind the wrong pattern of use that should have been corrected early on. If no one is there 
helping you to grow, instructing you on how to improve, helping you to become better and stronger and more accurate, then practice and time will only make it more natural for you to do the wrong thing that you naturally do. So when you're trying to understand the word elder, don't assume that it means a person is necessarily old. The key word in understanding a, a biblical elder is not age, it is maturity. And we can find examples of people who are relatively young in the faith, but who through diligent study and attention and passion for the Lord have grown quickly and acquired much wisdom in a relatively short amount of time. The Apostle Paul who wrote a good chunk of the New Testament scriptures, experienced radical conversion on the road to Damascus. Most of you are familiar with his story. He had originally started off as a Pharisee, a religiously elite person among the community of the Jewish believers. He saw Jesus, he heard his claims of Messiah, and he rejected him. He did not believe that this was truly the one sent of God, and he set about as a Pharisee to try and destroy the early church. He persecuted the believers. He had them imprisoned. He even ordered them to be murdered for spreading what he called heresy. It wasn't until Jesus Christ himself, the resurrected Lord, appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus and interrupted his life that Paul was able to see the error of his ways and surrender himself to Jesus and call him Lord and King. Now, he did not immediately begin to serve the church we know that from other evidences we have in the New Testament that Paul was likely in his 30s based on what he had accomplished as a Pharisee at the time of his conversion. Still a relatively young man. And after he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, the book of Galatians chapter 1 tells us that for three years he reclused himself, he dove into the Word of God and tried to relearn the Old Testament that he was quite familiar with but what he had, re he had misinterpreted for so many years as a Pharisee. He studied diligently. He pursued the Lord. He tried to understand how the gospel of Jesus Christ matched up with the Old Testament scripture. And then after three years of diligent study and preparation, he became a servant of the church. He began serving as a missionary and a church planter, not only instructing the churches that he planted, but also writing to churches all over the Roman world to instruct them in godliness and church structure. A three-year-old Christian is not a, often a very mature Christian person who's only known the Lord for three years is still often just grasping the, 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 the milk of the word. And yet here is an example of a man who through diligent study and, and dedication was able to rise in wisdom and experience very quickly and was used by the Lord God in a powerful way to bless his church. When God calls a man to serve as an elder, he's calling him to set an example of maturity, wisdom, and understanding. What he has learned by walking with Jesus Christ, he will use to give guidance and directions to others in God's church. All that God has taught to him, all that he has been able to glean from the scripture, all that he has observed in other godly men and women, he may now use to the benefit and the blessing of the church. And so I showed you Titus chapter 1 verse 5 earlier. Two verses later in Titus 1 verse 7, Paul uses another term to describe the same office. He used uh, uh, the term um, uh, just a moment ago that refers to elder, and now he's going to use the term that refers to an overseer. Verse 7, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Presbyteros is the word for elder, 
Here for overseer, Paul uses the word episkopos. Episkopos is one who is watchful over God's people in order to facilitate the growth of the members of a church, to establish direction and accountability for the church, and to keep her anchored to her mission. The overseer, therefore, keeps watch over the gathering of the saints so that he might protect them from threats, whether those threats come from outside the congregation, from the lies and the deceit of the sinful world that we live in, or whether they come from within the flock, from those who have infiltrated the church to try to spread false doctrines. The overseer must be vigilant to identify things that need to be corrected or potential pitfalls before they manifest themselves into major problems that threaten to divide the church. And in order to accomplish this, he's got to pay very close attention to the members of the flock while also keeping aware of the ways that the ministries of that church are functioning so that they might fulfill the commands that God has given to his disciples in the New Testament. So the overseer is responsible for governing the church. He makes, he makes decisions about the direction, where the church is going to go, how they're going to focus their energy and their attention and their finances. He renders judgments according to Scripture, and he declares what is the best doctrine to follow as a church. That was a pretty sweet move. I'm a little bit proud of myself right there. <laughs> I love air conditioning. Praise God for air conditioning. My family just got back from vacation in Palm Desert, and it was 117 degrees. We did not get out of the pool for much of the time we were there. Wow. So thank the Lord for air conditioning, even if it blows my script away. The overseer sets the direction and vision of the congregation and helps determine the specific ways that that congregation will work to fulfill the commands that God has given the church. That term for overseer, episkopos, is used again in 1 Timothy, in that passage that we've been reading in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy in the last several weeks. Chapter 3, verse 1, This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, of episkopos, then he desires a noble task. So we see here evidence that Paul's using several slightly different terms to describe the same office. An elder and an overseer are not two different roles in the New Testament church. They are different words that describe the same role. To broaden it even further, the Apostle Peter uses a third term to describe the very same office. And it is the term that is most commonly used to describe a leader in Western churches today. It is the term pastor. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 3. This should not be a, a shockingly new verse to you. We went over this several weeks ago as we looked at the motives of a godly leader. It says, So I exhort the elders among you, again, elders, presbyteros there, the elders among you as a fellow elder, fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Jesus Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. What is that word, oversight? That is the same word that we just talked about, um, episkopos. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but, keeping, but being examples to the flock. So this word shepherd that Peter uses there joins with the word overseer, joins with the word elder to give us a more rounded view of what this, this leadership role in the church really is, is supposed to be all about. We see it in verse 2 here as poimenate in the Greek. It's a verb meaning to act as a shepherd to the church. The word shepherd is translated into the English as pastor. Ephesians 4.11 
uses the noun form of that same verb as a title to describe the elder and overseer in terms of his special shepherding responsibilities, Ephesians 4.11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up the body of Christ. So in addition to the title elder, to the title overseer, a perfectly fine word to use for this position is the title pastor. It's a legitimate way to describe this primary leadership role in the New Testament church. A pastor, a poimenos, is one who acts as a good steward of the people of God, lovingly shepherding them, providing for their needs, protecting them from the threats that abound in this world, and nourishing them in the word of the, of the Lord. You might recall that when Peter had disgraced Christ by denying him three times on the night of his crucifixion, a few days later after Jesus had risen from the dead and was appearing to his disciples to prove that he lived and that he had conquered the grave, he appeared to Peter on the shores of the Galilean Sea. And you might remember that beautiful exchange where they're eating together and he asks Peter if he loves him. And three times Peter says, yes, you know that I love you, Jesus. And Jesus gives him some special instructions. He says, then shepherd my flock. If you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, tend to my lambs. God wants his elders, his overseers, his pastors to have shepherding hearts, hearts that not only organize and administrate, but hearts that love and care for and look after the ones that God loves. So an elder is an overseer. An overseer is a pastor. A pastor is an elder. An overseer is a pastor. These words are interchangeable terms. First Family Church has then four active pastors, don't we? And one pastor in training. Uh, pastor Paula Beta, myself, Pastor Nick Neves. We have Pastor, Elder, Overseer, Sean Linder. We have Clint Graves, who also serves as a elder, a pastor, an overseer. Now, you might not commonly call Clint a pastor or Sean a pastor because you don't see them in front of the congregation as much, but rightfully by Scripture, they are the equivalent of what we are. They have been called to serve God in this same leadership capacity, and they have met the same requirements that Paul and I have. So we have four active elders at our church and one elder in training, Matt, our worship leader, who's not here today. Um, we meet once a month. The, the third Monday of the month typically is when we meet. And for three or four hours, we discuss the spiritual health of our church. We pray over the needs of the congregation here. During those elders' meetings, we talk about policies. We talk about different ways that we need to refine our constitution and bylaws. We set direction for the future, how we're going to proceed to make this church a holier place. We ask the, the hard question and hopefully seek the answers. How do we reach the people in our community? How are we evangelizing folks? And, and what will we do to make them better, stronger disciples once they have given their lives to Christ? We meet once a month, but of course there's far more to do than we can cram into that one session. So throughout the month, on a day-to-day -day basis, we are emailing and texting each other to talk about the prayer needs of the church, to further discuss topics that were brought up, that we've been praying over, that we've been seeking instruction from the Word about. We oversee the way that the offerings are used after we collect them for the church. We want to support the kingdom, and we want to support the development of the disciples here, and we need to be faithful to use the resources that are afforded to us in a way that is responsible 
and that is effective so that we can best serve not only our community, but the world as we support the mission and the spread of the gospel throughout, uh, throughout this nation and throughout uh, this world that we live in. Now, the staff pastors, Pastor Paul, myself, Pastor Matt, we also meet weekly on Thursday mornings to coordinate the worship services that you're at here on Sunday mornings. We talk about ministry operations, whether that be Kids Club and how we're going to coordinate Kids Club that week, about food pantry and, and whether we have the volunteers we need to keep the love of Christ flowing through that ministry. We talk about missions projects, fellowship events such as our ice cream social that's coming up or Church in the Park that's going to be happening in September. Those are typically coordinated in our Thursday, um, Thursday morning meetings. And then as elders of the church, we also make it a point to mentor specific individuals who show a great desire to grow in the Lord. We will find people or we will connect with them ourselves to help meet their specific needs, to teach them where they're at in their walk with the Lord, and to develop them so that they might exercise their gifts in a way that glorifies God in the congregation. So as you can see, and as you can imagine, there are many things that we can as elders and will be involved with. Anything that involves the integrity of the church and, and the well-being of its members may very well come under the umbrella of what the elders are responsible for. You might even see your elders at, at times fixing the property or digging holes or, or mending lights. It's funny, as I was preaching this very point in first service, Pastor Paul, as subtly as he could, snuck up to the front of the sanctuary and went into that door. And we heard some banging going on in the back. And I had no idea what was going on, so I just preached through it and hoped that uh, we weren't under attack or something. And, and gratefully, the only attack that was happening was in the men's bathroom. One of the bathrooms had, had blown up, and he was looking for some tools to shut off a valve. But that's something that a pastor at times has to step up and do, right? Every pastor should be willing from time to time to help stack chairs or to take out the garbage. We are not above the work of the congregation because we are sheep as well. Though God has commissioned us to be under shepherds, we should be willing to do anything that anybody in our congregation is willing to do. But because the responsibilities of an elder can become so broad, Scripture has given us a caution that the most important functions of this position must be protected and must remain the primary thing that elders spend their time on. Missed it. Pride comes before the fall. <laughs> yes. Sermon just got longer because of that comment. Turn to uh, thanks, Andy. Acts chapter six. Let's go, let's go to Acts chapter six, church. <laughs> the early church began to realize that there are so many things that their overseers, their elders, might be expected to do. Uh, they are directing the church. They are evangelizing the lost. They are enduring afflictions and, and speaking publicly. They are administering the sacraments of, of, of baptism and of communion. They are doing so many things. As examples of the flocks, elder can be, elders can be overwhelmed at times. They can, they can become bogged down with so many things that are expected of them. But there are a couple of things that we learn here in Acts chapter 6. The overseers must be sure that they are doing. As we enter into this passage in chapter 6, verse 1, the church has been growing. It is in its earliest stages. But there are some important decisions that have to be made. And so we read starting in verse 1. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in numbers, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So let me describe what's going on here. 
the early church was already seeing the need to look out for its people. And there were widows amongst the congregations of those who believed in Jesus Christ as Messiah, and many of them didn't have families to take care of them. So the gathering of the saints had taken up offerings and were distributing some of the resources of the church to meet those women's needs and to meet the needs of orphans and to care for those who didn't have someone to care for them. And yet the Hellenists, these Roman converts to Christianity, were few and were not as familiar with those who had believed in Jesus Christ after trusting in the law of God as Jews. So these, these new converts, these Hellenistic Jewish women, had converted, but they didn't know all the other families, and so they were often overlooked. People didn't think to watch out for them like they did their neighbors that they had grown up with in their Jewish communities. And so there was an outcry of these women that said, we are believers too, don't neglect us, don't overlook us. And so in chapter two, uh, 6, verse 2, and the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So right off the bat, let me, let me mention something to you. These men were elders. These men were uh, overseers. They are pastors. And they were set apart to do a specific work. Though the need of the many was care, was food, was provision... They were called to do something more specific and narrow. By asking the people of faith to come up with other servants to do some of these works, to free them up, were they downgrading at all the, servants that, the, the service that these new men were to do? In no way were they downgrading their service. Next week as we talk about the, the inception of deacons, it stems from this passage in Acts chapter 6. We're going to see that God created a new ministry position to take care of the needs of the congregation not because that was below the elders or the overseers. It was because the elders and overseers had very specific calling that they must fulfill. And if they were constantly looking out for all the needs of the people, they would not be able to do the things that they were specifically called to do. And we read about that here in verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And next week we will, we will see how they implemented this new deacon position. But we see there in verse 4, tremendous evidence. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. These are the two non-essential or absolutely essential responsibilities of the elder, the overseer, the pastor in God's church. The elder is to lead the body of Christ first and foremost in prayer. In prayer. Now this might seem like a no-brainer to you. Almost to the point of not being needed to be mentioned. But while we assume that prayer is the responsibility and the habit of every Christian, the reality is that most Christians are woefully neglectful in prayer. And they spend far too little time seeking the Lord in that way. Their shoes are constantly being worn out with busyness, but the knees of their pants are pristine and mint and unblemished because they are not dropping to their knees to seek the Lord. Listen to what Pastor J.C. Riles has to say in his book, Practical Religion. He says, I believe that thousands never say a word of prayer at all. They eat, they drink, they sleep, they rise, they go forth to their labor, they return to their homes, they breathe God's air, they see God's sun, they walk God's earth, they enjoy God's mercies. 
They have dying bodies. They have judgment and eternity before them, but they never speak a word to God. They live like the beasts that perish. They behave like creatures without souls. They have not a word to say to Him in whose hand is their life and breath and all things, and from whose mouth they must one day receive their everlasting sentence. Humbling words from the mouth of a pastor who lived 150 years ago. And J.C. Ryle is not talking here about the world outside of the church. He's talking about the sad reality that so many who call themselves Christians do not pray to their God. Or their prayers are so brief and so repetitive to almost be as, as vain as praying the rosary without the beads. They have their breakfast prayer and their lunch prayer and their dinner prayer, each of which is only three or four sentences long and never varies more than a word or two. And then maybe they even have their go-to-sleep prayer where they pray just quickly about their day, but they're not engaging with their heart and their mind and their soul and their strength with this God whom they should love so much. How important should prayer be to the life of believers? Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. In this one verse, Luke is describing the general behavior of the church in its earliest days. And it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Four things defined the very early church. The first of all was learning the word of God from the apostles. They gathered together to hear the word preached and to try to understand it so that they could preach it to others and live according to it. Secondly, they were defined by loving one another. They experienced true fellowship where they gathered together to be a family to one another, to look out for each other's needs, to be there for one another. They are defined by the breaking of bread. You know what that means? The taking of communion together the observance of God's sacraments, of the things that Jesus had given the church to continually point them back to the cross so that they might rejoice in the power of what Jesus had accomplished. And then finally, what's the last thing they're doing regularly? The thing that defines them? Prayer. Seeking the Lord God together. If you can distill the church down to its very bare nucleus, you have that right there. The Apostle Paul in his address to the church at Philippi instructs the believers at that city, in verses 6 through 7 of chapter 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Does our society struggle with anxiety? It goes without saying. We are a people who is constantly afraid of what is just beyond the horizon. No country spends more money on insurance than we do. Everything you own is locked up somewhere. We are a people of anxiety, constantly worried and wondering about how we're going to lose our comforts, how we're going to be upset or become unhealthy. We're constantly stressing over these things. And yet here, the answer to this anxiety is given to us in Philippians 4, 6 through 7, and the answer seems to be what? It's not a pill. It's not a drug. It's not some mantra or some life coach. Prayer. 
Prayer is the antithesis of anxiety. Prayer gets us to put our eyes on the sovereignty of God. When we pray, we come into the presence of one who is not temporary like us, who is not limited like us, who, who does not just see a slice of reality, but sees the great picture of it all. And when we come into his presence in prayer, it should humble us, but it also should relieve that burden that we so often carry, that we think we need to solve our own problems. Here is a God who loves us passionately, and he has every resource at his fingertips. Should that not remove the stress and the strain of life. Prayer, by the way, should touch every aspect of our lives. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. There is no part of your life that God says, well, that's not important. Don't bring that to me in prayer. Don't waste my time. God doesn't live under the confines of time. He is eternal. Spend all the time you want talking about your life to God. He will listen to you. Bring all things before him because he needs to rule over all things in your life for you to be at peace. Prayer is the accurate response of a dependent and faithful heart. When a man or woman has given his life to Christ, he has come to the end of himself and said, I see my sin. I have no solution for it. All my efforts have gotten me nowhere. I am no closer to heaven by my religious activity than I was before I started it. Christ, I need you. I need you to overcome my weakness. I need you to give me the victory. Only by your perfect blood may I be saved. If that is the posture of your heart, if you have come to the end of yourself and you have trusted in Jesus Christ, then it makes sense that every day you would spend real time going to him again and saying, God, here's what I need today. God, i got to remember how great you are because I'm starting to get stressed out by this world that I live in again. Lord, there are things that I think I'm lacking, but maybe I don't need them. Show me that I have everything I need in you. Prayer is the thing that keeps us humble before the Lord because it keeps him on the throne and it keeps us in that position of dependence. And there is nothing wrong with that. The proud man of this world would say, well, I don't need to be dependent. I don't want to be dependent on anyone. And that is the, that is the attitude of a broken heart that is far from God. When we come to know the grace of Jesus Christ, then he brings us into fellowship with him and we are blessed to depend on his strength and his might and his guidance. Prayer results in hearts and minds that are guarded in Christ Jesus. The church in America will be far less vulnerable, not when all the laws favor us, not when we have every freedom we desire to have, but when we are praying the way we ought to be praying our hearts and minds will be guarded in him. According to Jesus himself, according to the very Son of God, much of the power we have to face and overcome our temptations to sin and to, to give in to the desires of this world are tied to our willingness to go to God in prayer. Matthew 26, 41. Watch and pray, says Jesus, that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. If you are struggling with an addiction or a compulsion or your thought life is in disarray or you cannot seem to stop desiring that wicked thing that you know does not honor God, ask yourself this, how much time are you putting into praying about that? Really, how much time? Are you seeking the Lord 
for what only he can provide? Or are you giving him five minutes a day and then living on your own power for the rest? Prayer is so powerful, friends. And if we trust the words of our Savior here, it is no wonder that the Christian in America is so commonly tangled in the struggles of the flesh. And can't we say without a doubt, the moral failures of our society, therefore, even of Christians in our society, can be undeniably tied to the fact that Americans spend so little time in prayer. Perhaps because of that sad fact that so many believers are not earnestly praying, God intends to raise up leaders who will pray for his church, who will instruct the church on the importance of prayer, who will lead them and keep them accountable so that they too might remember, I must be in prayer. That is why it is so critical for the elders of God's church to be men who pray powerfully, consistently, regularly, and with discipline. So the record of the early church in Acts here tells us that the elders of the church are responsible for bathing the local church in prayer. They do this a number of ways. They do it privately. Far before we check in and stamp our cards here at church, we are at home praying for you. Your elders have divided up the names of everybody who's involved with this church. And so you are on one of our lists and you are prayed for all the time. By name, you are lifted up. By your elders. Why? Because we love you. Not as much as the Lord loves you, but we love you, right? And we want to bring you to the Lord because he is your greatest resource. By praying for its members and its participants, the elders of First Family Church are fulfilling our role that God has called us into. Prayer is not just for the desperate or for the sick. We also pray for those who are healthy, for those who are doing well, for those who are growing in the Lord. We pray that the Lord might utilize you in His mission, that He might give you greater joy and greater confidence because of the great walk that you have in Christ. So we pray for the church privately. We also pray for the church corporately. The elders are responsible for making sure that our congregation prays together. No matter what we're doing, we are seeking the Lord out in prayer as a congregation. Every time we gather, we will seek His face. We will seek the God who saved us, the God that we love. Now you might think as we come in here to worship that our welcoming prayers are too long. So long we have to ask people sometimes to sit down to, to make it through. But considering what the Word says about prayer, maybe they're not long enough. Maybe we need to spend more of our time seeking the face of the Lord and putting our thoughts and our minds on Him before we end up making church into some self-help group where we're always just thinking about our own needs. Let us put our minds and hearts on Christ first. So as we as pastors, as elders, lead you in prayer, we teach you by way of example that our prayer is not just a laundry list of things we want God to give. He wants to know our requests, and that's important, but that's not all there is to prayer. We, we exalt the Lord in our prayers. We declare the things that He has declared to us in His Word. We thank Him for the ways that He has provided, and we remember the presence that He has shown to have in our church over the years. We lift up individuals and ask for God to save the lost as we pray together. We confess our sins corporately as well as privately before the Lord and ask for strength to overcome them. And so as we pray corporately for the congregation, you're learning how to pray by listening to your elders who are spending time in prayer. Elders also direct the congregation to pray privately. That means that we give you instruction on how you can be praying throughout your week. We tell you about the things that this church needs. We show you the, the, the 
the demands that God has put on us as a congregation so that you might be lifting up those needs and those expectations to the Lord. We have a prayer bulletin. When you come in every Sunday, you get your folder, your worship folder. There's a, a colored sheet in there that shows you how you can be praying for your brothers and sisters here and, and for our extended family and for our neighbors. We have a prayer chain. If there is an emergency, we don't have to wait till Sunday to tell you about it. We send out an email right away that says, so-and-so is in the hospital. Please be in prayer for them. If you can bring meals, help this person out. There is somebody who has a, a desperate need right now. Can anyone meet that need? If you're not a part of the prayer chain and you want to be, send an email to uh, office at firstfamily.us and we will get you connected to that. Office at firstfamily.us so that you may be, may be a part. Let them know that you want to be a part of that, that prayer uh, chain so that you can be alerted right away when there is a need in our church. Even the e-blast talks about what we're supporting missions-wise. So you can be praying for the missionaries like the Osbournes and like our relief efforts in Haiti so that the work of God throughout the world might be lifted up by our people. Elders intercede for the hurting, for the sick, and for the lost. James chapter 5, verse 13 through 16 says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So Brother James tells us here that the elders are to congregate with those who are particularly hurting in our congregation and pray that God would heal them, whether that healing be a physical healing here on earth or whether he would heal them by bringing them into glory and erasing all their sickness and all their sin once and for all. The elders of the church are to be supporting the people who are struggling through temptation and sickness in our congregations. And we are to pray that God would guide our church, give us direction, and show us which way to go so that we never put a step off the path that he has called us to follow. So prayer is so very fundamental to the church. Secondly, the focus that should dominate an elder's time, as mentioned here in Acts chapter 6, verse 4, the elder must instruct the body of Christ concerning God's word. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. When we read through the requirements of elders and deacons, we saw an, an overwhelming emphasis on the character of the men who would fill those roles. Remember, it wasn't a list of abilities or skills. It was a list of characteristics and character that made these men godly men. But among those characteristics, you might have noticed that being able to teach the word of God is the one skill that 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 requires of an elder. And it represents the main difference between what is expected of an elder and what is expected of a deacon. We're going to talk more about that next week. 1 Timothy 3.2, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. Titus 1.9, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Let me clarify. This doesn't just mean that a person's able to teach. They have to be able to teach the Word of God specifically. There are some who are gifted teachers and can teach you how to take an engine apart and put it back together brand new. They could teach you uh, how to scuba dive. They can teach you how to do a number of things. But if they don't know the Word inside out and backwards, then they're not able to teach well. The administrators of God's word 
our elders, our overseers, our pastors who will pour their knowledge into the people they have come to shepherd. That responsibility manifests itself in a number of important ways. It manifests itself in preaching. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5 says, I charge you. This is Apostle Paul talking to a fellow elder in Timothy, his protege, encouraging him about how he is to live out his calling of elder. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. So we're warned right here about a time that was soon to come, which we are living in now, when the people of God would get tired of hearing the truth, which is so challenging to them, and they would try to gather for themselves teachers who would tell them what they want to hear instead of preaching the truth to them. And so Paul is encouraging his young friend Timothy, do not stray from the task. You are called as an elder to preach the truth of God, even if it is not what people want to hear, even if it gets you into controversy, even if it offends, you are to, to the best of your ability, preach the truth in love so that you might keep the church pointed at its target, which is Jesus Christ. Preaching is different than personal study, by the way. I've, I've run into so many people that say, you know, I don't like really going to church, but I do study the Word of God on my own. And I'm glad that they study the Word of God, but I'll tell you, there is a difference between the Word preached and the Word studied by yourself. The word preached is truth declared rather than truth discovered. Now, you will discover, I hope, things as, as we preach to you, as we give you the word, there'll be things that you say, aha, that's new, that's different, just as you would if you were studying the word on your own. But there is something about the tone of preaching that brings these truths to life in a way that challenge us, don't they? They make us respond to these truths. We're not just learning something new, but we are being confronted with God's line that he has drawn in the sand. He says, this is my truth. Which side of the line are you going to stand on? Will you obey me and be, and be a part of what I have called you to? Or will you live according to the world and just applaud the truth that's on the other side of the line? Elders are responsible for providing that teaching in the word through preaching so that we might all be challenged to take up the mantle of truth and live by it. Preaching is given in imperative form. It is a command. It is a challenge to respond and to live in obedience to Christ. Secondly, elders are responsible for providing direction and doctrine and protection from deceit. There are so many falsehoods being propped up and passed as biblical truth in this world. So many heresies that someone has come along and said, well, this is Christian truth. When in reality, Christianity has nothing to do with that truth, or it is a distortion of something that really does belong in Christianity. It is the elder's responsibility to continually keep an eye on these problems and to bring them up to the congregation so that we will not be caught off guard. Much like the shepherd stands diligently with staff in hand, watching the perimeter, watching the, the bush line to see if there is a lurking wolf or a lion trying to wait for that moment to snatch up a sheep. 
so must an elder keep his eyes on the things that are being taught in our culture, even in our Christian culture today. We are careful about our focus group materials. What do we use in our small groups? We want to make sure that right things are being taught. We oversee the addition of worship songs in our church to make sure that we're not seeing things that don't accurately reflect the truth of Scripture. We recommend or lead you away from other teachers because we're not the only ones who can preach. There's some great preachers in the world you need to be listening to. And we're glad to give you suggestions on men that you should listen to and you should respond to and, and be blessed by. We are also responsible for equipping the saints for the work of ministry. And I read this a little earlier. I'm going to read it one more time. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers, Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So our job as elders is not to just do magnificent ministry so that you might applaud us and think, wow, we made a good choice putting those guys in charge. Our job is to equip every one of you so that as a, as a body of Christ, we move forward together doing the work of the Lord arm in arm, hand in hand. Our job is to equip you, to help you understand your spiritual gifting, to help you to see that if God can use other people who are not particularly gifted or particularly holy or particularly intelligent, then he can use anyone in the church. And so we are to equip you and get you prepared to do that great work. We are called as elders to be correcting in the scripture, to use the word of God to guide those who have gone astray back to the truth. And this is something that so many churches in, the, in, the, in our society today just are not willing to do. And yet it is one of the most loving things that can be done. When a brother or sister falls into a pattern of error and they have not repented of that pattern, to go to them in love and say, brother, sister, God doesn't lie. And he says here in the scripture that what you're doing does not match up with what he wants for you. Let me help you get back to where you need to be. That is true Christianity. That is love. And we need as churches to have men who are willing to begin that process, who will take that first step of loving correction so that our congregations do not devolve into a sinful mess. And we are also offer, to offer godly counsel to our people. When someone is trying to live according to God's ways, but they have, they have met an impasse, they are come to a point where there is confusion and they're not exactly sure which way to turn, to come to your elder, to your pastor, and to be able to just share what's on your heart and to let them guide you specifically to the scriptures that need to instruct your decisions. That is a gift and a blessing from God, that God uses the body of Christ so that we might encourage one another on to living in ways that would glorify Him. There is a lot more to say about the things that the Lord God does, but I want to end with this. As much as we have been cautious in our approach in putting the right people in positions of leadership such as elder or deacon, we cannot be perfect at it. I was almost brought to tears this morning as Paul walked in the office and he asked me if I had heard the news. One of my very favorite preachers was found to be morally bankrupt this past week and was removed from his position of preaching. A man that I've listened to, that I've encouraged by, and I can guarantee you that the church that he served up there in Portland, Oregon, I can guarantee you that they went through the right process, that they were careful about their selection of letting him come to lead their congregation. You can do all of this right, but don't forget, folks, we're still dealing with human beings. And temptation 
can find its way into the most faithful human heart. So let us rejoice, ultimately, that our greatest example will never be a man who walks this earth other than Jesus Christ. That the best pastor you will ever experience, the most faithful man that could lead your congregation, cannot hold a candle to the true love that you will see in the life and ministry of the Son of God. May we praise Him that He is the true head of the church. In the meantime, may the men that He puts in charge of leading His congregations, may they be faithful. May they represent Him well. And I, I even pray for this man that I admired for so long that he may repent and, and become humble and that God might correct his life in such a way that the name of, glor- of God is, is preserved and glorified through it. But may God use his churches for his glory and for his grace. Let's, let's close with a word of prayer, and then we're going to have one more song before we dismiss today.